right, welcome back to Presidential Podcast. This is Philip. And this is Robert. And we're on to our next part about Garfield and um, Chester A. Arthur. We just finished with the famous words of Garfield's assassin, and I think you can take it from there. And so I, w- I want to re- uh, remind the listeners that we've subtitled this segment, uh, Death Comes to the White House. And in fact, at this point, um, President Garfield had been shot at the Washington Railroad Station by a disappointed job seeker named Charles Guiteau. Uh, Guiteau referenced the promise of a job that he had and stated during the act of shooting uh, James Garfield that the motivation for him shooting the president was revenge for not receiving the promised job. So the country went into, understandably, a state of shock over the uh, patronage system, the idea that there were so many patronage employees, uh, the idea that the system was so politically motivated. Yeah, go ahead. You, the reaction to the assassination of a president is, wow, we need to stop patronage? It's not, wow, the president is dead? Is so, well, he wasn't, he, wasn't, he, wasn't, he wasn't dead yet. Um, he was on his way out. Mm-hmm. And it was the second, second president uh, assassinated. Well, he, he lingered for a bit. Two weeks? Uh, I think it was a little bit longer than that, between two and a half, three weeks, somewhere in there. Um, but the, the, the patronage system had come under some scrutiny during the Hayes administration. As, as, as we recalled uh, in earlier, uh, Hayes was, came into the White House under a big cloud because he lost the popular vote. And there was a dirty deal done down south to exchange the end of Reconstruction for the ascension of, of Rutherford B. Hayes into the White House. And many people, rightfully so, viewed this as, as a corrupt political bargain. Did Tilden make us think about it? Tilden, of course, made us think about it, but... Not, uh, not, like, not like um Clay had done. I mean, uh, the, not Jackson had done. No. Uh, Tilden's career pretty much came to an end after it. The, the, and again, Tilden's base was the, the, the northern ethnics, the northern Catholics, the Irish in New York City, so not as, the South. He made about as much noise about it as Gore made about it. As Gore or Hillary. Well, Hillary's made a bit about it. She so, was about it. so um, Hayes needed something to bring back his reputation. And one of the more active things that Hayes, that Hayes did, being president just before Garfield, was to actually attack Chester A. Arthur and say that the wow. person who was the uh, controller of the Port of New York, the biggest patronage plum in the country, the source of about 80% of U.S. government revenue, the biggest job giver outer. That one down where the Indian right. Museum is right. still, the Treasury right. Right. Ex- and that's the place. That's, that's exactly the place we're talking about. So for those of you who aren't in New York City, we're talking about the, the Treasury Collections Office at the tip of Manhattan Island in New York City. So um, Hayes said we have, we have to do something about patronage, and he, he, he attacked... Uh, Arthur, you know, said, I mean, when he was nominated for vice president, said that he was unqualified. And there was a practice in the late 1800s called moetai, or motai, M-O-I-E-T-Y. And this is an old medieval idea, going back to the 
robber barons on the Rhine and British commerce across the North Sea with the Dutch and so on like that. And the idea is that a customs collector who actively seeks out cargoes on ships which can be uh, taxed where they can impose the tariff on it gets a cut. And so Arthur's income when he was the uh, head of, of the uh, New York City Customs Office was around 50000 a year. Back then. Which 50000 of their dollars. You know, so in a, in, a, in a period where... And he was a government official? He was a government official. Wait, so there was a rule that he could get a cut of what? All the... So, so a, ship, a ship pulls into New York Harbor. And the, the harbor master gets a bill of lading of what's on the ship. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's got like bananas and coffee. Okay. So an enterprising customs official could say, all right, you know, I've got this, this bill of lading. Let's go onto that ship and check and see what they've actually got there. And either there's a bigger amount of bananas and coffee, or maybe there's some other fruit or dye or livestock or something on there that he can also charge an impost or a tariff on. So for, for what's listed under the bill of lading, he can't charge because that's been turned over by the shipper. But anything that the shipper has that isn't listed on there that he's trying to escape paying the tariff on, the uh, customs inspector has a right to it to a, to a, a portion of that. So that's that be maybe a million a year. In in current dollars? Yes. Oh I would I think it would more. be more than that okay. because um, I mean, if 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 uh, a good weekly wage back then was five to seven dollars, you know, he's getting ten thousand times that. I mean, he's not getting ten thousand per week times that. Right, right. So that would that would annualize out to what two hundred fifty, three hundred dollars a year. So uh, maybe one hundred fifty times the average the average pay. So you know we, we're we're million. we're looking yeah we're looking at big money, uh, for for a government post. Get that job. That's a government post. So, Arthur got it because he was the protege of a man named Roscoe Conkling. I thought oh who so was Garfield, the, that was the Chase protege. Yes. And and Arthur was a Conkling protege. Yes. And I know Conkling from Binghamton. They have some. Avenue is called Conklin. Right, and, and they're named after the same family, not the same guy. But Conklin was essentially uh, the <clears throat> political fixer and political executor for President Grant. Was he from New York? And Yeah. And, and, and he had the Conklin machine. Was he a fixer or was he a, um, like a uh, campaign manager? Both, because it, back then the... the, the, the functions were very similar. I mean, it's like, yeah, well, I, I, I got the campaign for you. I know all the promises that were made. I know who's actually uh, helped us. Didn't Jackson reform the patronage system, though? Jackson essentially started the oh, patronage started. system. Okay. And the so idea was... Jackson, go ahead. Was it? Well, the idea in Jacksonian democracy was that government work was something that any reasonably intelligent educated man could perform. Okay. So just by virtue of your being able to, to walk and chew gum, you were qualified to do government work. You said educated. If you had good handwriting, mm -hmm. I mean that probably was also a requirement because as I mentioned before, all their documents had to be hand, handwritten. So if you had good handwriting, that helped uh, with the qualifications. And then the next thing was being loyal to the uh, party of the administration in, in office.
So those those were the qualifications. Good handwriting. What are the qualifications today? Loyalty. So probably need to be part of the <coughs> cadre of the in crowd. In the period after Garfield was shot, when they uh, passed the Pendleton Act, they had a commission, Pendleton, Pendleton Commission, who studied what do we actually have to do to run government. And they came up with something which was very similar to uh, the Regents exam in New York City high schools. You had to know a certain amount of science. This is the Pendleton Yes. Son of Arthur? Yes. So you're going ahead. But go ahead. We're on Arthur. Okay. And we're on the, the civil service reform after after Garfield's death. So a certain amount of science, uh, numeracy, you know, ability to do to do simple arithmetic. Did he run on this? Did he run on being willing to reform the government patronage system? Um <coughs> Garfield was what they called a stalwart, which meant that he was good with the patronage system. Arthur, you know, the, the chief of, of the Port of New York, the guy who was making 50 grand a year from the system, probably we can figure he favored continuation of the patronage system. A stalwart means you want to end the patronage system? means you want to keep it going. You like, you like the patronage so system both because... Stalwarts. Right. But the guy who shot Garfield was also stalwart. He was also stalwart, but he was, uh, he, he didn't get the job that he wanted. He was a disillusioned stalwart. He was a disillusioned stalwart. And so he was punishing the stalwarts in the name of the stalwarts because they weren't coming through. They didn't deliver. The gravy train wasn't. The gravy, gravy train didn't stop at his station. <laughs> Did, why was Garfield in favor of the, I mean, he's not making 50K a year off it. Why is he in favor of the stalwarts? <coughs> Because the elections at that time were so close. All right, um, 1876, the Republicans lost. In 1880, out of 9 million votes, the Republicans won by 2,000 votes. This is the closest election that we've had. So the, the, the uh, Participation rate back then was, was always in the high 70s to the 90s. So they were high participation elections. Extremely close because it, it was North full, it versus was South. Suffer. It wasn't full suffrage, right? It was, it was um, male suffrage without a property requirement in okay. most states. Okay. So it was what we would refer to as universal male suffrage. Okay. That was under Jackson. Right, so, uh, but even though Jackson was for it, it was a state-by-state -state basis because the Constitution, the qualifications, the Article sure. 7, right. So um, this was a very close election. So essentially, what you offered people was, you're gonna get a job, your brother-in-law is gonna get a job, you know, somebody close to you is gonna get a job or stay in a job if our party stays in power, but so keep not, voting for it, us. See, here's the thing now, that the bureaucracy is much more, I think, obviously more bloated than it was then. But these guys are career guys. If Bush is in office, they're in. If Obama's in office, they're in. If Trump is in office, they're in. It wasn't like that then. So that's, that's one of the changes wrought by the Pendleton Act, uh, that the civil service became a separate aspect uh, how many people of government. Are, how many people are employed in the civil, National Civil Service right now? Uh, I think at the federal level there's like two and a half million of them. And they're cushy jobs. But it's, it's one out of six American workers works for government at some level. Municipal, state, or federal? Right. One out of six. Right. And um, federal jobs are coveted jobs. I don't know if they're cushy jobs, but they're coveted jobs. One out of six, but, but not one out of six dollars in the economy goes to the government. It's more like so that, I it, would think, eight. So the federal government typically takes about 20%, mm -hmm. and the state and local governments typically take about 13%. So oh, the federal government does take, so they take one out of five dollars. So that's how they bank. And then another 13% on top of that, so it's closer to one out of three dollars. 
And then they employ one out of six people. And then they employ one out of six people. So, uh, let's see, state, state work then is somewhat less well-paying probably because they get a third of the, uh, oh, I guess it would be better paying, right? Like there's half, as, half the proportion of people working for the government as the money they take. Well, that's not the way it seems to work. So. Um, I mean, they also have a smaller pool to choose. Pool but anyway, let's, let's go back to the uh, historical period. All right, so you want to go back to the historical period. Uh, so, so the Pendleton Commission started classifying work, you know, making specific job titles. Um, identifying the skills and qualifications for the jobs, and then uh, writing tests that applicants for the work could take, and which then could be evaluated. Applicants could be ranked, and the people scoring the highest on the test would then be the prime candidates for appointment to the jobs, and then. Once they were appointed, it would be essentially uh, a career appointment, you know, like with the, the mail carriers. I mean, obviously a certain degree of physical ability to walk and carry packages and so on was required. But more than that, there would be certain organizational ideas, you know, sorting the mail, thinking through the route so that you can get the mail efficiently out of the bag and into the mailboxes. and. Uh, certain questions about your honesty and so on would be important. So there was a psychological aspect, a, a skills aspect, and uh, so when the candidates took the test, you know, you might have 150 guys show up, uh, maybe half of them failed the test, and then among the others they were, they were ranked so that uh, suitable candidates could eventually be chosen and hired instead of it being done by political patronage. Um, was this the first thing he did when he got in office? Uh, very, very early on. I mean, there was uh, also a, a, a Chinese Exclusion Act. Wait, I want, I want to go to Chinese Exclusion Act right now. What Why was it, I mean, why is somebody killing the president over this? Like, nowadays, people talk about civil service. They, some people like it, some people don't like it. Some people want to get in it. Some people think it's a waste of money. But nobody's killing anybody over it. Why at this period is well, it so... Well, was crazy. Um, he was, he was able-minded, you know, but, so he, he, stood, he stood trial. Um, but that's not the answer. Hayes made a big deal about it. Uh, it's a big major accomplishment of Arthur for Arthur. Garfield was a stalwart. This guy killed a president over the civil service. It's not like it was a non-factor issue. It was obviously a big issue. Why was it such a big issue in that period? Uh, government employment is a major source of employment in any community. The uh, elections to a large degree hung on the ability of the government workers to motivate their friends and neighbors to come out and vote for their party to keep them in employment. Um, but more than that, I think there's a degree of morality or a very strong moral streak in American uh, political thinking. You know, most countries, they'd probably think, oh, you know, sure. To the victor belong the spoils, you know, your party wins, they get the plum jobs. The other party has lost, you know, we want to keep them loyal and interested in the game, so we'll give them some lesser ministry or we'll give them uh, lower, lower echelon jobs in the government so that they have skin in the game and they have a motivation to improve, but, you know, they're clearly the losers. Uh, you know, this, this would be the practical approach, and it worked in this country for a long time. But there is a degree of, of, of moralism, and, and Hayes uh, tapped into that. Hayes was a, a, a religious uh, man with a, 
kind of a fiery evangelical uh, aura about him. Uh, Garfield was much more a practical politician, but you know, you know that uh, women's Christian temperance movement was coming, uh, growing up at this time. Socialist Party in America was growing at this time. There were a lot of there were a lot of groups that just had very strong uh, urban uh, uh, moral basis. Now, the ur- the urban machines were probably still mostly Irish because by now and Democrats and Democrats because they were against the Republicans. Uh, by now, we haven't seen the big Eastern and South South European immigration to the United States. Uh, the uh, immigration of Chinese is starting to reach numbers where they're about to ban Chinese from immigrating to the United States. So the the, the biggest source of immigration to the United States during these decades from 1850 to about 1880, 1890 or so, was still northern Germany, the Low Countries, Mm -hmm. and Scandinavia. And Ireland starts when? Ireland was was pretty much a big push in the late 1840s. But when was, didn't they have a big movement when the famine happened? Right, about two million of them came over in a very short period of time. That was in the 1840s, was it? Well, uh, 1849 was, to, the was, was the Irish potato famine. Oh. And so a big group of them the came answer, over there. 1890, 1900? Yeah. So the Scandinavians and the North Germans came in dribs and drabs. You know, not, not a big swelling group. And they mostly moved to... I, I, you know, lesser populated areas. I don't want to say English? unpopulated because there were Indians there. How much were English over here and staying over here? So they, they, they were a steady immigration factor. Uh, low numbers, but, but a steady stream of people. And uh, most of the English descendancy in the United States comes from the original colonial period, about four million or so and their descendants. So I don't think that the number of English people who came after we declared independence from Britain uh, really was that substantial and number of people. French wasn't substantial. French wasn't substantial, it was not. Because they were too busy. They had they low birth their, rates, they had, a col- they had colonies yeah, they all over the stuff. place that they had to take care of. Um, okay. Um, and Asians, the only people who were getting were Chinese? A few Japanese, but mostly Chinese. Okay, so talk about Chinese exclusion. Maybe you can start, we were talking about, before we started this podcast, we were talking personally a little bit about opiate use. I mean, is that connected to the Chinese exclusion? No. Well, there were the um, opium wars in China. Well, they they were fought earlier. They were fought in the 1840s. But that must have to do with our trade and our connection to China. The, the, the British were the ones who conducted the Opium Wars. And they fought them to gain entry into the Chinese ports. Did we have any Chinese contact in the 1840s? So our Chinese contact was different than the British. The British wanted to take over Chinese ports. Either take the more... Uh, easily developed land on the bay sides where they could build quays and, and other facilities for shipping uh-huh. or start new places like Hong Kong where they could have big uh, shipping centers. So the British wanted to import opium and collect a tariff from the Chinese government for distributing it so that they would have the money to develop these ports and facilities in China. The Manchu dynasty, the then emperors of China, refused, and the British imposed it on them by a naval war. The American trade 
with China uh, was the clipper ships, the fast sailing ships sure, that could cross, cross the Pacific, and whaling. So we had uh, an active trade with China, but it was silk, spices, whale, <coughs> whale products, you know, was California pretty, a state by then? California came into the Union in late 1840s, 1849, I believe. Oh, right. So, yes. So, yes. So, we had industry and, out there? Well... What was the Transcontinental Railroad? It was, it was the Transcontinental Railroads in 1840s and 50s. And that continued right through the 1890s that opened up the West for us. I mean, well, basically, China trade was... Uh, leaving New, New York, New England, Pen uh, Philadelphia, sailing around the bottom of South America over to the Eastern Asian areas in the Western Pacific, and then sailing back. So it was not a high volume trade, Before but it was, right, but it was a high value trade. I mean, the tea, spices. the spices, the silks, all those things that they bought from the Chinese had commanded very high prices back at home. So those voyages were immensely profitable, like, like Frank, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the Delano Line, his mother's line, were uh, a, a, an American trading family with the Chinese who grew wealthy from the Chinese trade. But it was peaceful. Uh, America mostly pr uh, pursued what we call the open door policy, which was our ships will come in, they'll dock, you know, whatever the facilities the Chinese have, like we'll trade. trade yeah, yeah, but like free trade. Then now. the Transcontinental Road just brought up another notch. Well, that was more for us to exploit the West Coast than for us to trade across the Pacific. But because you have to think. Ports in the in California. I mean, it's a lot easier to build a port in California and, and to bring it across the train than it is to go all around the Strait of Magellan. Well, that that was the argument for the Panama Canal. Yeah, that was later. That's um, But they really didn't have the railroads at, at that time. I mean, it really was cheaper to ship by, by water. So when did the... It still might be cheaper to ship by water, but when was the... But the railroad was at least completed. 1849 was the first one. So... Chinese immigration, how much was it coming in? Well, I mean, like they built the western part of the of the railroad expansion. Yeah. Um, Do you know till what, Utah? I think it was probably more that the whites wanted to dominate California. I mean, we were the Americans. California already had a sizable brown population. Chicanos. Well, I'm going to say Chicano right, because Mexico Chicano. means means Mexican. Um, and the war with Mexico the, had been fought in what year? 1845 to 1848. Oh, so it just finished. Well, I mean, now we're talking 1880, right, so, so it's a few decades sure, before. Sure. So um, whites saw themselves as a bare majority in California. And they didn't like the idea of another racial minority coming in and making them a minority. So but that... Who, who thought the Chinese could come in in those numbers? Whoever was counting people. I mean, San Francisco probably was a third to... 40% Chinese. Yes, San Francisco still has a huge Cantonese population, but I mean, that's one. And town. San Francisco, but San Francisco was like the Boston of California. Sure. I mean, LA was like nothing back then. I know, then. but it's still one town. But, you know, that's like saying Boston is only one town in Massachusetts. Okay. Um, I see that. All right, so the Chinese were starting to get a stranglehold in. In San Francisco? Well, they just, they were very numerous. They were how, how fairly were well organized. 
at least since the, at least since the 1830s. Uh, they probably but they probably got their big start during the gold rush. So it's probably during the 1850s and 60s yeah, that the biggest I mean, numbers of them came over. They're not going to be over. coming over in huge numbers before the British imperial. Well, the the, the the gold rush was the big impetus. And I mean, the they Chinese heard about the they, gold rush and they came rushing over. Just like everybody else. I mean, gold is just as valuable in China as it is in Europe or America. So they come over, um, they help build the railroads, supposedly they're really mistreated? They probably, you know, I mean, we could talk about coolie labor as, you know, low-paid, back-breaking work, you know, and the Chinese were the coolies. I mean, I'm sure that so. work in China was similarly back-breaking. Um, one of the one of the, I'm blanking on his name just now, but one of the uh, labor leaders in the Bay Area uh, was an Irish American. In what period? This period? Uh, yeah, late seventies, uh, through the early eighties. Eighteen seventies, eighteen eighties. Right. Okay. And he thought the Chinese were were could prosper on wages that would starve a white guy. <laughs> I mean, clearly a racist idea, sure. but apparently a lot of people believed it. Well, they had been, traditionally they had been rice farmers, and rice, I mean, it has big yields, but it's long hours. I mean, rice, like if, if a European farmer is working, if you annualize it across the year, 40 hours a week, these Chinese rice farmers I've read work 50, 60 hours a week. Or... They just came up with an invidious racial stereotype and pushed it. No, so I don't know because I mean obviously, but I also I'm just saying that like there's a reason Chinese are known across the world for having a, a great work ethic. Well, Chinese have a great work ethic and they're and they're savvy. So they were you know they were formidable business competitors. They're not savvy. They're smart. There's also it's also a culture that values education. And it values trade and, they, and, and of mercantile service, kind of stuff. They had they, thousands of right, years before we ever right. So that. so so the Chinese, you know, were not you know ignorant heathens. I mean, they were well organized. They spoke a language that very few Westerners could even begin Muster, yes. to understand. Right. And uh, there were a lot of them. And you know, the, the, the white Californians didn't have a whole lot of cards to play, you know, and this was, this was one that worked. So they did, so tell us what happened. So uh, they petitioned, and in the, in the East, I don't think there was a, uh, a lot of concern. I mean, there like weren't... here nor there. Hmm? Here nor there, in terms of they didn't feel one way or the other about it. Right, but, but they had it so impressed on them by the Western congressmen. But how did Mark Twain feel about this? Because Twain was alive during this period. I, don't, I, I can't tell you without looking it up. Okay. Uh, but they were they they had it pressed on them by the Western congressmen. You know, we're going to lose California. You know, you let these guys take over. You know, what we fought for. You know, what we fought the Mexicans for. We're going to lose it. So we've got to stop them from coming over. Now, at this point, I know early on there was. So this is before the period of mass immigration in the turn of the 20th century. Right. There was obviously the Irish immigration period. There were a lot of German immigration. But um, from what I understand, beginning early on, if you made it to the shores, you could be nationalized. You didn't get a visa to come. And I'm sure, I'm not sure, but I assume that's what the Chinese, that's what the system was when the Chinese were arriving. So, there there had to be sponsors. There was there was some kind of a of a, of a process that they went through. Did they get visas? Um, did the did the federal government put out a a, a time clock and a quota of visas for these people? No, right. There there were, I mean. And you, when did that start? You t you you talk to people of European descent, particularly of Eastern European descent, and they'll tell you how their great-grandmother, their grandmother, got sent back three times yeah, they were because sick. she had whooping cough. Yeah, if you're sick. They've always been throwing people back um, if you're sick. 
But they, they had other rules, you know, whatever it was that they sent you back for. But there was no INS is what I'm saying. There was. And what time, what year was it found? I, I mean, again, you know, you talk to, to people uh, and, and, and more likely of, of Eastern European descent who had their names changed at Ellis Island or at other, at other immigrant that, stations. Why does that mean that... Why does that mean that there was an INS? Somebody was changing their names. See, I, I'm telling you, the INS began, was part of the Department of Labor, but it wasn't founded until 33. What was, what, what, what did, it was, some, it was one of the Treasury Bureaus that managed immigrants before that. Okay, I, I mean, I have to look it up right now, I don't want to go into it. But that organization was created in the 30s. Right. Which is when they started cutting off so much European immigration. That had peaked over a million a year in the 19. Well, I think it was closer to 600,000 a year. No, no, no. Then. No, some of those years it went up 1.2 million. All right. And then by the time they got around to the Second World War, they wanted to cut it down a lot because obviously um, they couldn't just be bringing in a lot of Germans during the 30s. That would be suicidal. And uh, they cut it off for a while until the post-war period. Well, each of our each of our experiences with with foreigners has led to uh, reassessment of our immigration policy. Narrowing. I mean, the, well, the, I don't know about that because there's a much more broad coalition of immigrants post-war World War Two than it was pre-World War Two. Since 1965. Yeah. You know, that's when we're starting to get into the end of the liberal consensus. I mean, the, the immigration uh, liberalization was one of the last remnants of the, of the immigration uh, of, of the liberal consensus. But let's go back to the 1880s. So Chinese exclusion, Arthur vetoed the bill. Said, I'm not excluding the Chinese. Why? He didn't think it was right. Morally. He, I, you know, he probably, you know, he's a Christian, he's a minister's son, he probably thought, you know, why are we excluding people from coming to live among us? And uh, they... And they, Democrats, did they care? Democrats wanted to keep the country white. I mean, it was, I mean one of the Democratic platforms, uh, platform planks back then was a white man's republic. Republicans probably were more mixed, mixed on it. Um, they they repassed it with a ten year exclusion and he had to sign it. He didn't feel so. At first, it was a permanent exclusion. Twenty year. And then they brought it back to a ten year. He signed it. Right. Huh. And then it was low, low, very low uh, immigration <coughs> quotas. And then after when that. did the Chinese start coming in in droves again? Sixty seven. Nineteen sixty seven. Yes. And what was the name of that? Well, that was the, the liberalization of immigration in the late 1960s okay. and the repeal of the Asian Exclusion Act. It was an Asian Exclusion Act by then. Tell, tell me about um, the position Arthur, Chesley Arthur was in in the second part of his, after the Chinese exclusion and in the second part of his, he only ran one, he was only in there one term, not even a full term. As a vice president. He succeeded, you know, so he was never elected president. Sure, he's the only president that's like that? Uh, Tyler, uh, Johnson. Andrew. Andrew, yeah. Um, Teddy started Ford. Like he got in. Oh, yeah, Ford. Okay, good. All right, so there's been a couple. What, what, and he never, did he, what, did he run it in 84? He wanted to, but he got sick. Of? Uh, nephritis, kid, uh, Bright's disease, a Which kidney disease, kidney, a kidney disease, a fatal a kidney, kidney disease. Um, essentially, the, the kidneys filter your blood yes. and take the impurities out of your blood yes. and then pass them out of your system in the urine. Yes. And uh, they can become damaged so they can't do that anymore. And they toxins that your body naturally produces from digestion and from the the hormone uh, the endocrine system 
start building up and it poisons you. Is it a genetic so, disease? No, no, it's, it's, I'm not sure what the causes are. Uh, Could you, there was no dialysis back then? No. Uh, kidney disease until fairly recently, until the past 30 years, was one of the top five killers. So it wasn't uncommon. Uh, you know, if you think about pets, if you think of veterinary medicine, a lot of the, uh, one of the first problems with uh, dogs and cats is renal disease, kidney disease. Um, uh, all right, what, um, how old was he? Not that old, because he's born in 29, right? So he's born in 29, he came into office in 80, so he was 59. No, 50. Or 49. Yeah. And uh, so he was in his, in his early 50s, which is a, you know, pretty vital age. Tell me about his position with the GOP towards so, the end. Was well, he popular? He was, he was never popular. Um, he had a certain uh, mystique in that... He had a fair amount of money. He dressed very well. Was he big? He was very tall for the, for them. I mean, he was about six foot. But, you know, back then, the average man was about 5'9". So he seemed, he seemed big. How big was, Garf was uh, Garfield? He was around the same height. So they're both big, kind of strong. Well, they were generals, you know. And uh, he dressed very well. I mean, you, you look at some of the pictures of Arthur, and if you cut them out and put them put put Arthur's pictures say like in, in the the Russian court at St. Petersburg or someplace you know one of those cold cities over in Europe uh, he fits right in yeah I see him with mutton chops but he doesn't look bad no he was he was he you know he was a dapper uh, devonair suave type of, of of a figure back then you know an attorney dealing with the highest degree of, of society so, uh, he wasn't. Do you think he was personally ambitious? He wasn't considered back then what the, what they call a swell. You know, he he did have a degree of a, of a common touch. So he had the potential not to hurt the ticket, but he wasn't the kind of guy they wanted to start off to start off with. So what's a swell? Like a dandy? Uh, like a rich guy who's just too much. You know, just I mean. Roosevelt like had Mitt Romney? TR had that that kind of like thing, Mitt you know, Romney? just like Mitt Romney, you know, and like he's just too rich, he's too, too, too much like that. Um, what was the question you just asked me? If he was like a dandy, he was he was elegant, but he was manly. And oh, you asked me a second ago if he was ambitious, and yes, you know, I mean, he went to law school instead of into the ministry or into teaching. Did have that ambition. <clears throat> he did get involved in politics. He did demand that he be appointed the director, you know, the controller of, of the Port of New York. I mean, he did. He did have. He wasn't pushy in the conventional sense, but he definitely had his eye on on advancement in higher office and rose. You know, but well, there's a he rose mostly through appointment rather than election. And that seems how it was. That patronage system was a real thing then, um, and through connections. I mean, he seemed, but he seemed also. He was, like he he was very come, well connected. He didn't, but he didn't come from a family that was necessarily very well connected. Well, his 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 mother's family were prominent. Uh, they were Herndons, and there were a lot of famous Herndons back then. Uh -huh. uh, they were in 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 uh, publishing. Uh, they were in politics. They were in, in different religious so, organizations. So what was his position in the GOP going into the end of his term? So um, Conkling was losing his, uh, his, his, his clout in, in New York City. And a Democrat named Tweed was actually taking over the city. So uh, Arthur's base, the Conkling machine, was, was essentially eroding around him. Uh, he alienated the stalwarts pretty well. Did Conklin and Tweed have a personal rivalry? 
I think Conkling just kind of retired and Tweed just kind of took over. Okay. Was it a passing of the torch? Well, one was a Republican, the other is a Democrat, so it wasn't a passing of the torch. I mean, it was more like, you know, give me that, you know. But, but they weren't rivals. Um, they, had, they, had they been more contemporary, they would have, but Tweed was a bit younger. And who was the more gifted politician? I mean, the local politician, city boss? Probably Tweed. Okay. I mean, Tweed is a legendary boss, you know. Okay. I mean, he's, you know, he's, he's the one in all the cartoons, you know, he's the one who talked about honest graft, you know. He had a pretty honest craft. Yeah. So, like, basically, you know, when you're looking at giving out a contract and you've got five or six contractors bidding for it, one of them might be a friend of yours. And if he's a friend and you steer the business his way, that's honest craft. All right. So, you know, this was a huge undermining of the idea of getting patronage out of politics, which, which... Arthur Did was pushing. Hold an elected office. I think he was just the party chairman. Okay, so but he's a Democrat. So, but obviously Arthur knew them because Arthur had come out of New York City. Right. Conlon's losing steam. Arthur GOP must have had some foothold in 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 New York City, maybe among the bankers and the lawyers. It it's still had a very strong appeal to upstate people, the small city people, the, the, the Republican Party, still had a very strong appeal to small city people, mm -hmm. to rural people, mm -hmm. to the type of merchants and farmers who lived on Long Island. Mm -hmm. And New York City at this period of time was, was being populated more by I mean, New York City's population always increases more from immigration than from natural increase. Mm -hmm. um, so it was mostly people moving in from other parts of New York and Long Island and New Jersey mm -hmm. who were repopulating New York and making New York grow in population. Mm -hmm. So there was a steady influx of new Republicans coming into the city. So the Republicans who were there were kind of welcoming towards them. This is why when the Irish got there in big numbers, the the Republicans really couldn't accommodate that kind of those kind of numbers of newcomers, and so the Irish became they joined the opposition party, which was the Democrats, and became the base became the Democratic base in the city. Okay, um, go back to Conklin and uh, so Conklin, because of age, because of the connection to Grant, which was fading because of uh, civil service reform, because of Tweed's dynamism, was losing his grip. Uh, Arthur, like I said, was a stalwart, took civil service control, or civil service reform as his signature issue. So he lost a lot of standing among the stalwarts. So he really became kind of like somebody who, who well, lame duck. Somebody who didn't have any particular standing with any faction, which he thought, this is a great position for me. Because? Because I, I can help no everybody. Yeah, I have no special You know, I'm not... I'm the American president. You know, now. I'm the one. And he, he really wanted to run for his own term. Would he have won? Well, James Blaine of Maine, the plumed knight... The, the beau ideal of the Republican Party of this period was his main rival. And it would have been a battle of titans. It would have Why been... Why do you call him a plumed knight? That was his nickname back then. But what was he like? He was, he was just an amazing politician. He was like the Reagan of the time. Okay, very debonair. You know, very debonair, very appealing. Uh, it, by their standards. I mean, he was portly... He was portly. Why do you keep that he was by their well. Men who were handsome to them looked kind of bloated and hideous to us, and hairy. You think Arthur looks hideous? Garfield looks pretty hideous. <laughs> uh, Blaine, probably, if you saw a picture, you go, oh, you know. Um, Go I do remember the guy from, I don't know if it was Hayes or somebody that ran in the 1860s, I guess it wasn't Hayes, some, Repu some Republican from Ohio 
ran against Lincoln in 1860, Seward, Lincoln, and somebody else. And that guy was supposed to be very handsome, and I've seen pictures of It's probably guy. Chase. Maybe, but he looked like a... This, is he close to his daughters? Yes. Yes, Chase. And they're like, wow, he's so handsome. And I was like, what the... <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and I mean, I, I, I think Arthur, I mean, he was he was tall. He was a bit on the portly side, but he carried it well. And he was very elegant the way he dressed. I think, you know, in any age, he, w- he would be viewed as a, as a, as a handsome man. But uh, he just, had he been healthy, he might have pulled it out. But then he found out that he had this disease, you know, and he just wasn't physically able to conduct uh, the sort of campaign he needed to conduct to beat Blaine. Did he die in office? He died two years after he left office. Okay. And and you get sicker and sicker. I mean, you, you debilitate, you know, over a period of time. Is there, is there something, anything else you want to add or say about Arthur, about his legacy, about what the transition was? So, uh, a couple of things. I mean, one was... The bloody shirt, the idea of, of getting votes from the Civil War veterans was starting to die out. And they were starting to think, we have to reunite the white men in America. So they were moving towards more exclusionary policies towards other races than white. You know, Chinese... Uh, Exclusion Act. Uh, really, really, really repressive measures against the Indians in the West. I mean, there. Well, yeah, there. Uh, there, you know, there, there, there was some sympathy for for giving Western lands to various individual Indians or their families. You know, and kind of like setting them up like homestead farmers. And they decided that would give the Indians too much autonomy. They needed to keep him on reservations and tribal lands. So they gave the lands to the tribes so they could confine the Indians. They must have felt guilty on some level. To those reservations. Well, they felt the Indians were dangerous and a threat to to the advance of of white civilization. I mean, they probably were dangerous. If you're a U.S. citizen, you're strolling around your homestead in Oklahoma, you probably would be afraid of Indians. But... I mean, it's still sad. I mean, it's still messed Well, up. And, and you have to remember, Custer's last 10 was in 1876, just four years before. So that was... You know, where the, where the Indians wiped out a major U.S. Army uh, organization, a major, you know, major part, major unit in the, in the U.S. Army. So they were still seen as an active threat. Oh, yeah. And, you know, they're trying to what spread the Custer railroads out there. out there. Hmm? What was Custer trying to do out there? Just start trouble? <sighs> Um, Custer's plan apparently, you know, it's hard to say because he didn't really leave good records, but he uh, apparently deserted a post uh, a few years before and was under some kind of censure or suspicion for, for battlefield cowardice and desertion. And so he was trying to redeem his, uh, his reputation and also, he was trying—he was trying to crush the Indians. I mean, he, Custer believed in a in a policy of of extermination that they would attack Indian villages and kill them all. Okay. You know, and he did that at at the famous battle where they're playing Gary Owen. You know, and the instruments were like frozen to their lips, and they, I mean, they they killed men, women, and children. Was he open defenseless? About his Anti-Indian rhetoric. Oh, they all were. I mean, the whole U.S. Army was dominated by officers who wanted to kill all the Indians. Was it different than their sentiments towards black people? Well, black people were seen as, as valuable property. You know, the Indians were just seen as like a dangerous, big nuisance. Dangerous you know? barbarians. Dangerous barbarians. And so apparently Custer thought he was going to attack this village and kill all the Indians. And, you know, they had four or five times as many warriors as he had troops with him at the time, and they just they just wiped him out. And then, you know, Chinese exclusion, the, these uh, genocidal policies against the American Indians, and then, like you say, Jim Crow just came back. You know, we just reenacted... In 1880. 
Right. You know, we just we just stopped reconstruction, so the, you know the redeemers came in and started enacting Jim Crow laws. Why is it that so. you want to make a point about the, this white this strain of white supremacy? Why is that important for you to point out? Because a in viewing national unity, you know, in this period after the Civil War, they viewed national unity as white unity, not as multiracial unity. Multi unity. Yes. And it wasn't just white unity. It wasn't just, you know, well, we're white and we're not that different, you know, but we want to protect our, but I also our white heritage. It was white supremacy okay, but I also think in addition to white unity. Okay. I also think that there must, there wasn't, it wasn't seen as like white Every white is on equal level either, equal footing either. No, but... The Irish whites were considered to be low-class whites. But we were above all the other races. Right, but Irish whites were lower class... I mean, there were definitely whites. gradations and social strata among the white population. But we were all higher than even the highest people, the most valuable... So why do you want to make... What are you trying to make... What, what is the relevance of this point, other than... Well, this, this, this is a big stain on American history, and it persists. Mm -hmm. You know, it persists. I mean, we have the, the Declaration of Independence, you know, all men are created equal. And then we have this persistent national ideology that the white race is superior to the other races. So there's, there's a tension in our national ideology and you know and, and if it is a free country it's an area in which freedom is really shrunken and diminished this for is people of color gilded age? gilded age is coming up this is the okay, beginning so of the gilded coming. age what, what, okay we'll, <coughs> we'll get to that is there anything else you want to add again you know this was uh, two presidents in one term Death, we got two birds death of one in office, a mortal illness for the other, which yeah. was very big a part of him leaving office. Yeah. Um, a change in the American political culture from the sectionalism and uh, orientation towards the Union in the North orientation towards our peculiar way of life in the South, more towards a national type of, of view, of vision, that's gonna come up with a lot more investment, the beginning of, of the railway expansion, big time, uh, during the 1880s, and as you say, the Gilded Age, in which the, the, the capitalists at the top of American society, really start feeling their oats, and and dominating American government. I mean, uh, Arthur may have been the last of the Protestant moralists to hold that office, to hold the office of the presidency. Arthur, uh, a minister's son, a very well. All right, all right. So you know, I'll go with with Coolidge. Wilson. But but Wilson 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 actually had a uh, a political agenda that he was pushing reformism. I, like Wilson, I, might have been wrong, I feel like Wilson <coughs> is the international is the internationalist. Wasn't Coolidge a, just a straight Protestant moralist? Not Coolidge. Yeah, Coolidge. Coolidge. Yeah, Coolidge. Coolidge. Coolidge was very similar. I mean, very similar. Didn't go to New York. Went to Boston instead. But but Arthur, there's there's a degree of naivete, sure, it's, and it's, and innocence. No yeah, it's still he's still kind uh, of in 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 uh, Arthur that we don't see with Coolidge. Yeah, sure, no, I agree with that. I can see that. All right, so um, who's who will be our next president? You think? I'd like to do Cleveland. Next. Yeah, the you know the first person to win three successive elections, even yeah, though he only got elected twice. Huh? Big boy Cleveland. Big boy Cleveland. All right. All right. So Ma, Ma, where's my paw? <laughs> 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 <laughs>
<laughs> Going to the White House. Ha, ha, ha. All right, cool. So maybe we can do Cleveland next. Uh, we'll stay, in, and that's kind of in the Gilded period, I guess. Well, this is the beginning of the Gilded period. All right, so we'll, we'll, and but he wins that. Student, so we'll do the rise of Cleveland, where he comes from, for our next segment, maybe. New York president. All right, great. So uh, thank you for listening again. Um, we'll, uh, like we said, we're hoping to get some more of these out to you. Appreciate your. Um, patience with us and and we we we, uh made this one on christmas day so merry christmas to you all happy new year's and i hope that everybody has an absolutely smashing holiday uh season and i wish you all prosperity health and happiness for 2020 yes and if you probably won't hear this on christmas because we're not going to get this out for a couple weeks but we hope you have a great 2020 thank you for listening this is philip and this is robert and all the best